Three minutes past the hour of six o'clock, and this is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. I don't know how many of you all were up late last night in the New York metropolitan area, but man, we got deluged with some thunderstorms that you would not believe. I mean, I'm sitting up, and, and you know, next time I was afraid a tree was going to fall on the house or something. That's how bad it was. Uh, and then this morning, you know, after a little early morning haze, the sun came out. So go figure. What are you going to do? Speaking of thunderstorms, there's a bunch of thunderstorms in Greece, and that is going to be the first story we deal with this evening. The prime minister of Greece, Alexis uh, Tsipras, I, I actually looked up the pronunciation of his name, now says that he is willing to compromise with Greece's creditors on a bailout package. Uh, sad to say, many of his European colleagues are not all that happy about this bailout package, and they're really not happy with CPROS's decision to call a referendum on Greece's bailout woes and whether or not the country, and, and I think this is like democracy in the extreme, but apparently most of Europe doesn't think so, they want the Greek people to vote on this thing as to whether or not they should go forward with this proposal. Now, the proposal that he agreed to compromise to is one that is uh, accepting of many of the terms of a bailout package that Greece had previously rejected. Greece accepts these uh, particular uh, uh, stringent measures if they are part of a broader deal to address the country's funding needs for the next two years. Now, Let's start here, if we might. What happens, what, is, what are they asking Greece to do in exchange for helping to bail out that country's economy? What are the two things they want? Increased taxes and cuts to pensioners in Greece. Now, I don't know whether that is going to, you know, cure Greece's woes, but I find it interesting, and to be quite honest with you, very, very troubling that the Greek people are going to be subject at the same time to higher taxes and a slash in pensions. I don't know what people think pensions are or what they're supposed to be. I do know that in America, we have gotten a twisted notion of what a pension is supposed to be. I must have run into a half dozen people in the last month, all of whom said to me, you know, I thought I was going to have a pension. I don't have one. You know, and I guess, uh, The answer in this country is, sorry, sorry you don't have one, should open a 401k or whatever. But here's what I find ironic about this. The International Monetary Fund and all these bankers, because rest assured, the Greeks owe the money to the banks, although they're starting to close some of their own, prevent a run on banks, but 
The bankers are the main people that Greece owes money to. I think it's like $1.6 billion would have been what they'd have needed to raise to stay out of trouble, okay? Now, in states across this country, and I'm not sure a lot of people are paying attention to this, in states across this country, governors are acting just like Greeks, all right, including the state of New Jersey, which is run by a guy who now wants to be president. He reneged on a pledge he made to fund pensions for public workers to a certain amount, and then he just cut it, and the courts backed him up. But see, they don't call that a default because that was money that was supposed to go to pensioners. I guess it's different than money that's supposed to go to bankers. Because when it comes to money that's supposed to go to bankers, it's the end of the world if you renege or default or say you ain't got the money. Here, politicians say, we don't have the money because Christie, to be fair, is not the only one that's done this. Half the states in the country have underfunded pension funds. Why? Because the mandated amount that was supposed to be contributed went someplace else. Yet that's no big deal. No sweat. Ain't no thing but a chicken wing. Or, in Christie's case, he will tell you, it's good politics. How is it that pensioners can get the short end of the stick while bankers are supposed to get every dime it is? Why is that? And again, it's not something that you hear people talk about. It's not something I've, I've seen written about. I'd be real interested to see a headline in the New York Times. Greece does what America's governors do, default on obligations. They don't say that. They really don't. And I know something, well, you're comparing apples to oranges. It's not the same thing. Well, tell me how it's different. I mean, it's different in that the people getting stiffed aren't the ones with the money. And I'm not saying that any country should, like, just throw up their hands and default on their obligation. I just find it sad and tragic that in the case of many countries, not, not just Greece, but many countries, the solution that the bankers come up with is screw the workers, raise their taxes, cut their pensions. And pensions, by the way, that, that I assume, you know, were written as obligations of the government. We're supposed to give people X number of dollars a month. That's the pension for working X number of years. And the IMF comes and says, later for it. Get rid of it. I don't care what you obligated yourself to do. We say you got to pay us. Sounds vaguely mob-like, doesn't it? F you pay me. <laughs> that's, that's how that works sometimes. And I think that, uh, to be fair to everyone involved, people ought to at least have the information to ask, well, okay, if it's not the same, why is it different? And, you know, people will throw up their hands and say, yeah, but it's a country, and the, the, the country's economy, as Greece goes, so Europe goes, the American stock market takes a beating. Yeah. That, to me, is 
effect, not cause. I don't see that big of a difference between the Greeks missing a payment and governors across this country, including Jersey, missing a payment. A payment's a payment's a payment. But I guess some people don't see it that way. Uh, Angela Merkel, or excuse me, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, said that there should be no further negotiations uh, negotiations until Greece holds the referendum on Sunday. And many European leaders are hoping, against hope in my judgment, but hoping that Cyprus's position will be undercut by that referendum. I'm not sure. Now, the polling initially said 57% of the Greek electorate want, took Cyprus' side in this and wanted to reject the, the initial bailout package. That supposedly has now narrowed so it's 46 to something. So maybe the Greek people are so afraid of what will happen, what the bankers will bring down on their heads, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what they're looking at. But what would governors in this country pay off their obligations like everybody's screaming at the Greeks to do. Switching gears ever so slightly, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio went to town on Governor Andrew Cuomo in a series of interviews, most notably with my good friend Errol Lewis at New York One. He said that Andrew Cuomo stymied New York City's legislative goals out of personal pettiness, game-playing, and a desire for, quoting here, revenge. Bill de Blasio says Andrew Cuomo, quote, did not act in the interests of New Yorkers by blocking measures like reforming rent laws and the mayor's long-term ability to control the city's public school. Now, when Mike Bloomberg asked for an extension, he got six years. The legislature this time around only gave de Blasio one. So he vented. He vented because I think he was tired of the governor playing him as a patsy, playing him for a fool. Remember that Bill de Blasio wanted to check the rise in the number of charter schools. And what does Andrew Cuomo do? He shows up at a charter school rally smacking de Blasio straight upside the head. The mayor says these are acts that are vindictive. He cited cuts in state financing for public housing and a ramp up of state inspections of city homeless shelters. Quote, with a vigor we had never seen before. Now, to be honest with you, I don't have a problem with inspecting homeless shelters. Homeless shelters should be clean, functional places for folks that have no homes, and to the extent that the city can't maintain that, they deserve to be inspected. But I didn't realize they cut state financing for public housing. That sucks. Public housing is already in the basket in New York and in cities across the country and across the state. And Bill de Blasio says, quote, that was clearly politically motivated. 
And that was revenge for some perceived slight. It's not about policy, says the mayor. It's not about substance. It's certainly not about the millions of people affected. So de Blasio took the gloves off here. But I got to tell you, and I don't want to say I told y'all so, but back when Andrew Cuomo first took office, was that 2011? Yeah, 2011. Was it 2011? Maybe it was after, maybe before that. Whenever it was, when he first took office. I was on New York One, and I asked the question then, would Andrew Cuomo be more comfortable with a bipartisan legislature? In other words, one house, the Assembly controlled by Democrats, the other house, the Senate controlled by Republicans. And this spoke to, at the time, Andrew Cuomo's stated intention to help the Democrats retake control of the Senate. And I thought at the time, and I still think now, that Andrew Cuomo, and that's not to say I'm saying he's a a bad guy or whatever, but that Andrew Cuomo is more comfortable with dealing with a Republican Senate. And in this case, with Shelley Silver and Dean Skellos both gone as leaders, he was able to gang up on Carl Hasty, the Assembly Speaker, the newly crowned Assembly Speaker, on issues like regulation and several of these others. And then, to make it even more interesting, Andrew Cuomo jumps out after they make this big, ugly deal, and it's not my words, it's theirs, He jumps up and says, oh, this was a great victory. For who? For who? Now, John Pudharz wrote a piece in the Post today talking about how de Blasio risked the future of the city, I'm paraphrasing here, by bad-mouthing Andrew Cuomo in this way, and conveniently ignored the fact that there have been contentious relationships with mayors and governors of New York for the last little while. Mike Bloomberg didn't go dancing with Andrew Cuomo, who was governor for part of his term, or George Pataki, who at the time was a member of his same party, or Elliot Spitzer, or David Patterson. Bloomberg used to go to Albany and come back with next to nothing. And I mean next to nothing. But this is de Blasio untamed. And by the way, he did it just before he left with his family to tour the Southwest on vacation. I guess he figured, well, let the the pundits figure it out. It was, without doubt, a barbed, as the New York Times called it, a barbed set of criticisms. Now, what makes it Interesting is that these guys are both Democrats. Both have cast themselves as progressive Democrats. Yes, that's right. Andrew Cuomo casts himself as a progressive Democrat. Now, this isn't new. The de Blasio people have been telling anybody who would listen that Andrew Cuomo stood in the way of many of the reforms he wanted to carry out and had to go upstate to get it done. 
See, because the governor here has a lot of power, a lot of power. If he wanted to, Andrew Cuomo could have horse traded with Senate Republicans on certain issues. Of course, they're beholden to the people that fill their coffers with money, like the real estate interests downstate. So they might not have uh, initially exceeded to Governor Cuomo if he had wanted some serious things, like the elimination rather than a 200 stinking dollar increase in the rent that would trigger vacancy decontrol. 2,500 to 2,700. De Blasio, and I think rightly, championed an elimination of that particular vacancy decontrolled thing. Wouldn't have been a cure-all. I'll explain that to you momentarily in terms of Manhattan housing prices. But it would have been something. Andrew Cuomo, I don't know. I don't want, I, I can't impugn. I met the man several years ago. I can't attribute motives to him. But I have to think politically, he must have got a kick out of kicking de Blasio's ass for the last little while. Over a year now. And now the mayor comes back. Now, the governor responded with a statement. Quote from Melissa DeRosa. For those new to the process, it takes coalition building and compromise to get things done in government. We wish the mayor well on his vacation. Now, if you look at what the legislature, with the governor's acquiescence, whether he said anything, didn't say anything, stood out of the way, impeded, or even aggressively promoted certain things, they didn't come up with much. It was a last minute, past the end of session. I don't want to say. <laughs> There's a, a term called that starts with the word cluster. I think many of you might know the second word. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it here. But that's what it was. I said it as much last week before they finished all this crap, or right on the point of finishing all this crap. And they, you know, they announced a deal that they hadn't even cast into stone yet, and a deal that many members of the Senate and Assembly hadn't even read yet. Hadn't read. So Bill de Blasio, on the one hand, has some, some beef. Some beef. Not unlimited beef, however. You know, some, people, some progressives are going to say, this is your own damn fault, Bill. Because you let the man step on your neck, and now you do a, an interview that says, my neck hurts. <laughs> what? You should have done better sooner, maybe. But be that as it may, we'll see if the two of these guys can speak together. I'd, I'd love to see them both, and, and, and it's going to come sooner rather than later. I'd love to see the two of them as part of a gathering of any type, press conference, uh, you know, anything, where the mayor and the governor would normally stand together. Will they stand together? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. 
We're going to talk about a few of the Supreme Court rulings that have come down lately. It's 22 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. I always thought, you know, constantly saying who you were was a little egotistical, but I listen to enough radio to hear people repeat their names every two minutes. And actually, the name of their show is, is the title, you know, their last name is the title of the show. That's cool. If that's what they want to do. I call this the Mark Riley Show because my wife made me. <laughs> anyway, one of the lesser known, because, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act and, and same-sex marriage, those were the two Supreme Court decisions that everybody focused on. Some people focused on the uh, execution drug issue, which we'll get to. But one of the things they did was rule that independent panels could constitutionally usurp the authority of state legislatures in drawing district lines, congressional district lines, which happens once every 10 years. Now, you could just hear state legislators all over the country clenching their teeth because this has been in many states, the source of their power, that they get to draw the lines. And in many cases, they gerrymander the lines to achieve a particular end. In many instances, that end is the protection of incumbent politicians of both parties, not just Democrats, not just the Republicans. It may happen more often with the Republicans because they control more state legislatures. But the Democrats have been guilty of this, too. And, you know, they pile a bunch of people into a district uh, to make that district safe for somebody. A racial group, an ethnic group, whomever. Well, the Supreme Court said you ain't got to do it that way anymore. And the New York Times today is actually examined the performance of the independent redistricting commissions that were validated by the court. By the way, had the court ruled the other way, these independent commissions, one in Arizona, one in California, would have had to disband. Arizona did it by uh, a ballot initiative back in 2000. It's one of the first states to entrust congressional boundaries to an independent commission. California did the same thing in 2010, although there are significant and substantial differences between Arizona and California in terms of the processes involved here. Four other states have their congressional districts drawn by independent panels. But those commissions were formed by the state legislatures, and they weren't affected by Monday's rule. You know, if you let the fox guard the hen house, you're not affected by this particular ruling. But this Times piece, which is in upshot in the New York Times, says that districts in both Arizona and California have become more competitive since the introduction of independent commissions. Now, if you're a partisan person, you might say, because in California, for example, the Democrats have a majority of at least one, maybe both houses, I, I didn't look it up, excuse me, um, of the legislature. So maybe for them, it benefits the Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, why would you want to change the status quo? I would change the status quo no matter what, 
because I believe in competition. See, it's probably the only part of my being that is purely capitalist. I believe in competition politically. And I believe in unfettered competition politically. Of course, we'll get into that when we get into the 2016 presidential race. Where right now, if they had a Republican debate, they'd have to bring in about 12 extra chairs for the people that are running. But that's another discussion for another day. The bottom line is, if it fosters competition and reduces gerrymandering, so be it. The maps resulting, according to the New York Times, from both the 2001 and 2011 redistricting in the state of Arizona were among the most competitive in the nation as measured by election results. That I find interesting. California just decided to do things a little bit differently, as they do, sometimes out of habit, I guess. The commission in California was legally forbidden from considering partisan data when forming the district. That's different than Arizona, where the commission was supposed to use the data to promote competition. I like the California approach. Throw the parties out of the process when it comes to redistricting. Just take the data, the raw data, and draw your lines. Make them compact and contiguous and goodbye. In California, according to the chair of the California Commission, the committee spent most of his time focusing on respecting communities of interest. I got no problem with that. Now, California created a map that was far more competitive than its predecessor, drawn by the Democratic-dominated state legislature. Well, you know what? Good. (laughs) I say good. Because I'd say good if it was a Republican-dominated state legislature. Because redistricting, in too many cases, becomes an incumbent protection program, slash party in power instrument. The party in power in a particular state gets to draw the lines, and they draw the lines so that they remain the party in power. That's what they do. They'll call it self-preservation or something. But that's what they do. And I think it's beyond time that it stops. We now go to Greeleyville, South Carolina, where the Mount Zion AME Church burned. Starting at about 8.30 last night, burned through the church's roof. Now, they're investigating whether this and a spate of other black church burnings in Georgia, North Carolina and Tennessee, most of them predominantly black. And all of them in the wake of the Dylan Roof massacre. I don't have to say alleged because he said he did it. Now, again, uh, and, and I said this last week in terms of the church that 
where these people died, where these nine people died, tragically, needlessly, innocence. I say that this is part and parcel, what I'm about to tell you, of how the black church functions. And some people don't like it. I find it uplifting. Instead of rushing to judgment, black church pastors in and around Greeleyville, South Carolina, are urging caution. Them and elected officials, too. State Senator Ronnie Saab says, we simply want to not stand in judgment, allowing law enforcement to do what it does best. And again, we have full confidence in their ability to do just those things. It's a black guy. The pastor of the Mount Zion Church, Reverend John Taylor, said people should wait and see what the investigators conclude. Quote, things are often not what they seem. Just wait and see. Speculation is never good. Now, there are some people that are skeptical of that particular position. That would be because all of the church fires in these southern states broke out days after the Charleston Massacre. Now, none of the churches, church burnings here have been called a hate crime, not yet. Now, this particular church in Greeleyville was destroyed by a fire in 1995, set by two Ku Klux Klan members who later pleaded guilty to conspiring to set fire at two churches and at a migrant labor camp. Now, here's my thing. We're all supposed to be Christians, right? Where do I haven't heard a word yet, and maybe it's because I'm reading the wrong media, because uh, it, it, it may have happened, and I'm sure there are some people, clergy outside the black community, who are expressing outrage that this is taking place. But I don't see the kind of organized hollering and screaming and rallies at the state capitol that I saw in the wake of the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. And, of course, the people that argue about same-sex marriage say it's a matter of religious freedom. Well, what abridges religious freedom more than burning down a house of worship. Do you have to be black to recognize that? Do you have to be black to say that? Yet I, I don't see all these people jumping up in the white community, white Christians, evangelicals, conservatives, whatever they are, I don't see them jumping up and saying, this is a problem we got here. Now, to be fair, they're still investigating. But sometimes if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you got to call it a duck. All of these fires, Georgia, North, South Carolina, Tennessee, all of them happened after the Charleston Massacre. What, black churches suddenly became vulnerable to faulty wiring or lightning strikes and it only hits a black church? I don't know. I'm not sure that that's something we ought to take for granted. Maybe it is. 
Maybe these are just all unconnected tragedies. Maybe. But I would argue that a healthy dose of skepticism, and that's not to disrespect the clergy or the elected officials in the town that has been affected here. I'm not trying to usurp them. They've taken a position of wait and see, and that's cool. I don't argue with them. But I'm going to be the skeptic here and say, doesn't look like any white churches are burning to the ground in these affected states. And the fact that all of them happened after the Charleston massacre makes me very, very skeptical. And I mean, part of it also may have to do with uh, something I saw on a a thing about the Roosevelt's. There was a, a, a PBS piece on the Roosevelt family. And it's interesting, they they were referencing the fact that Theodore Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House. I guess it must have been early 1900s, 1904, 1905, somewhere in there. And a sitting state legislator, I think he was from Tennessee, not to pick on Tennessee or nothing, but wherever he was from, said they would have to kill a thousand black people to put black people back in their place after Theodore Roosevelt had the temerity to invite what he called an N-word to dine at the White House. Now, hey, it was a century and change ago, right? It's different now. Life has changed. We've made progress. And I'm not here to argue that we have not made progress. I'm just saying. Sometimes. Sometimes old habits die hard. You know, uh, getting back to the Supreme Court, because I love to pawn all over the place. My wife says it's one of my great faults that I just like kind of float in and out of streams of consciousness. It's what I do. I'm sorry. I can't change now. I'm too old. But, you know, uh, a lot of people think that these most recent Supreme Court rulings are a stunning victory for the liberal wing of the court. Now, I'm assuming most of you know who the liberal wing of the court are, is, are, whatever. Uh, That would be Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Those are the four liberal members of the court. They were joined in several rulings, by Anthony Kennedy, who has become a crucial swing voter. And in one one case, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, some folks have been waiting for this for a long time. A long, long, long time. Uh, There was a ruling, five to four decision, that allowed Texas to reject specialty license plates bearing the Confederate flag. That ruling was issued the morning after the Charleston Massacre. The liberals on the court, which I just, who I just mentioned, voted as a group. But guess who joined them? Ladies and gentlemen, Clarence Thomas. Now, to say I'm surprised would be an understatement. I mean, understatement. The Times calls it 
a rare alliance. Yeah, you can call it that. But what this particular piece in the Times points out is that largely through the leadership of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the liberal left, however you want to describe it, wing of the court has managed to stay remarkably cohesive. Those four vote as a block most of the time, which is why you see so many five to four decisions, one way or the other. It's very, very, very interesting. Apparently, uh, last term, the court issued unanimous decisions in about two-thirds of its cases, which was a modern record. This term, the number dropped to about 40%. So not a great deal of unanimity in the court. But very, very interesting. Now, Kennedy, in fact, voted in a majority in most of the 19 decisions that were decided by five to four votes. So in 13 of those rulings, Justice Kennedy either joined the liberal members or joined the conservative members. In previous terms, he leaned right in such cases about two-thirds of the time. This time around, he voted with the liberals eight times and with the conservatives five. Now, I guess for some, that means the United States Supreme Court is not the unmitigated disaster that people thought it would be when John Roberts was first appointed to it. Because this is, like it or not, the Roberts Court. We should not, however, at least I'm not, going to get too carried away with this. The bottom line here is that it's still a conservative court. And uh, David Strauss, a law professor at the University of Chicago, He said the cases that the court agreed to hear may have created a misperception about how liberal it has become. Quoting David Strauss, it's still a conservative court, just not as conservative as some had hoped and some had feared. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, Anthony Kennedy, for example, voted in favor of Obamacare, which was to reject the challenge to it, specifically to the health insurance subsidy. Uh, By the way, that doesn't mean that that's the end of the attempts to gut the Affordable Care Act. They're going to keep going. They are going to keep going. Now, one of the Supreme Court rulings that shows is not (laughs) a completely liberal court anymore came in the issue of execution drugs. The Supreme Court allowed states to use a particular drug that some death row inmates in Oklahoma said created undue pain on executions. Now, some have said that the push to ban this particular drug, midazolam, yeah, midazolam, 
was part of a larger effort to try and eventually find the death penalty unconstitutional. If that was their intent, they failed. Because the Supreme Court said, it's okay to use it. What's interesting now is that a lot of states are simply not using it. In Texas, which is an execution-happy state if I've ever seen one, the state prison has a supply of midazolam, which, by the way, is a sedative. It's the thing that's supposedly uh, administered to knock you out before they give you the lethal cocktail that kills you. They have a big supply, but apparently the state prison system in Texas has no plans to start using it. Prison officials plan to use another sedative, I'm reading from the New York Times now, known as pentobarbital for the state's next scheduled execution on July 16th. They execute regularly in the state of Texas. On Monday, Ohio issued a new lethal injection protocol that no longer calls for midazolam. And officials in other states, including Georgia and Idaho, said the decision had no impact on their execution protocols because they did not use midazolam. Now, I don't know how much backstory I need to tell you all about this, but part of the reason why this has become an issue is that certain drug manufacturers would not ship their drugs to states where they knew the drug was going to be used in lethal injection executions. Said, nah, uh, not doing it. Particularly from European drug makers, where the death penalty is, how best to put this, frowned upon. Now, a staff attorney at the death penalty clinic at Cal Berkeley says, quote, I don't think the the Supreme Court's stamp of approval cures the deficiency in this drug. Now, there are 31 death penalty states, 31 too many as far as I'm concerned, but that's just me. Only a handful use midazolam or include it as an option. Florida, Virginia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arizona are the states where this is allowed. So they can keep on using it. Oklahoma has not rescheduled yet its first execution after the ruling. And, uh, you know, Oklahoma had a really, really bad and really, really ugly execution by lethal injection, where apparently the Now, Justice Samuel Alito, why is this a surprise, wrote for the majority, said the inmates failed to make the case that midazolam created a a substantial risk of severe pain and had failed to identify an available and preferable alternative method of execution. So, we'll see. We shall see. Three inmates... Richard Glossop, John Marion Grant, and Benjamin Robert Cole are scheduled to be executed. And the state attorney general in Oklahoma asked the Court of Criminal Appeals to set execution dates for those three. 
Now on to a less depressing topic. How about that? I want you to remember this name. Curtis Jackson. He is a citizen of the greatest city in the world, that being New York City. And the other morning, yesterday as a matter of fact, he was starting his shift as a probationary sanitation worker. He and his partner, Kieran Phillips, stopped at a 7-Eleven on 23rd Street and Park Avenue South about 6.30 in the morning. Supposed to be a stop on their way to the sanitation department garage. So they went to the back of the store because I think Curtis Jackson had to go to the bathroom, as a matter of fact. An employees-only sign was posted on the bathroom. As he made his way back to the cashier to ask for the key, he noticed a man holding what appeared to be a gun in the right pocket of his blazer. The cashier had his hands up. Well, mistake on the part of the alleged robber here. Curtis Jackson is a former Marine. He sneaked up an aisle behind the man, grabbed his arm while pushing him against the wall. The man struggled, and Curtis Jackson pinned him to the ground. He says, quote, my main concern was to try and get the weapon away from that cashier and not to point it at my partner. I didn't even think about it. I just did it. While Curtis Jackson knelt on this man's back, his partner, Kieran Phillips, called the police. Officers came, took the man to the 13th precinct. He was booked on charges of third-degree robbery, criminal possession of a hypodermic instrument, a needle, and criminal possession of a weapon for simulating a gun. He was identified as Nicholas Mycena, and he said he was homeless. The weapon apparently turned out to be a marker. Now, this is an act of heroism that doesn't always happen in our great city. And he's been receiving accolades, as Curtis Jackson, from different people, from different elected officials, You know, the best thing you could do for this guy, aside from giving him the keys to the city, but the best thing you could do for for this guy is to take the word probationary out of his job title. He shouldn't be a probationary sanitation worker. He should be a sanitation worker. Because that was an act of heroism. Suppose the guy really had had a gun. Curtis Jackson could have been shot. God forbid, could have been killed. Apparently didn't didn't phase him. He apparently used his Marine training to subdue this guy. He's from Brooklyn. Joined the sanitation department July of last year. He was a 15-year emergency medical technician for the fire department. He's in the U.S. Marines from 1995 to 2003. And he said the takedown techniques he learned during the time he was a Marine helped him on Tuesday. Good for Curtis Jackson. Congratulations to Curtis Jackson. I told you before I was going to tell you something about housing prices in Manhattan. This isn't for rentals. This is for sales. So those of you who rent, you don't have to be worried about this. The average sales price of a Manhattan apartment hit a new high in the second quarter of this year. Apparently, the average sales price rose 11% from the same period last year to $1.87 million. That's the average. The median is slightly less, $980,000. Median sales price measures the middle of the market. $1.87 million, $980,000. 
Now, you know, most New Yorkers, hardworking New Yorkers, sanitation workers, cops, firemen, fast food workers, they can't afford no $1.87 million. They can't. But somebody's doing it. Somebody's putting up the money. According to Pamela Liebman, chief executive of the Corcoran Group, and they sell a lot of real estate, quote, we saw continuous demand across all price points, buoyed by some exciting new developments that have come on the market, and a continued influx of influx that is of buyers from guess where, China. Says Pamela Liebman from the Corcoran Group. In all my years of doing this, I have never seen such a hunger for New York City real estate. Now, you know, I said, you know, renters don't really have to worry about any of this. And I'm wrong, actually. Renters do have to worry about this. Renters need to pay attention to this. Because as prices continue to rise, pressure on rentals, particularly pressure on tenants who are not paying a boatload of money right now. See, because the real estate business follows this stuff. So you got landlords who are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, why don't I just convert my building into condos or whatever, and I can get double or triple the price and the money up front. That's right, the money up front. So renters do need to pay attention. Uber, you all know about Uber? The car service, ride-sharing service, however they want to describe themselves. Well, they had a city council committee meeting. And that committee was considering a temporary freeze in the issuing of four-vehicle licenses. This was proposed by the uh, Transportation Committee Chair, Yadonis Rodriguez, and Councilman Steve Levin of Brooklyn. It calls for a study on possible traffic congestion from the growth in the taxi cab and for higher vehicle industries. Um, I think they're wrong. I love you, Donis Rodriguez, man. Good people. Always has been. Steve Levin, good people. Talk to both of them. But I think they're wrong. I don't think you need to do a study on traffic congestion in New York. All you have to do is look out the stinking window. You'll see traffic congestion in New York. It's all over the place. What they would do, what this would do, okay? The study won't be, uh, uh, well, put it this way. The legislation would limit four higher licenses based on company base size until the study is completed or by August of next year, whichever comes first. Companies like Uber would be allowed to grow by up to 1% per month. Bases with 20 to 499 vehicles, Uber has more, will be allowed to grow at 5%, and bases with 19 or fewer vehicles could grow by 15%. Now, nearly 2,400 vehicle licenses were issued each month during the 2015 fiscal year. That's uh, a a 63% growth in the four higher fleets since Uber entered the market four years ago. Most of these pickups are taking place in lower Manhattan, which, by the way, is where the council sits. See, to me, I think they're wrong because I think they miss an opportunity. Uber and Lyft and the rest of they want to come in here 
and clog the streets. They should pay for it. And I'm not just talking about licenses or taxes or bidding, bidding, bidding. I am talking about a dedicated revenue stream from these folks that will go directly to mass transit, like some of the other taxes and revenue streams that go to the subways and buses. You want to clog the streets? Fine. Pay for it. And by the way, Uber is not the worst offender here. Uber's drivers make up less than 1% of the 2.7 million cars and trucks on city road. So you're going to limit them pending the outcome of a study when they make up 1% of the drivers in the city on any given day? I don't know. I don't know. Now, it is legitimate I should say. That's legit. But I, I, I just think they're kind of sort of picking on Uber. Got a couple of minutes left. Malcolm Smith, some of you may remember him. He was for a time the majority leader of the New York State Senate. Well, he's not anymore and he's not going to be because he was sentenced today to seven years in prison for attempting to bribe his way onto New York City's Republican mayoral ballot two years ago, back in 2013. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking then. But U.S. District Court Judge Kenneth Karras imposed a sentence in White Plains Federal Court. Malcolm Smith was stone-faced throughout the proceedings. But this was a political career that was, at at a point, quite powerful, that was ended based on greed, and based most of all on stupidity. You don't try to buy your way onto a ballot. I don't care who you are, and I don't care what the circumstances. Malcolm Smith wanted to get on a Republican ballot to run for mayor in 2013. How silly was that? Instead, he got seven years. Former Queens Republican leader Vincent Tambone got three and a half for his role. So a $200,000 deal Malcolm Smith was trying to run. How silly. Our final story is even sillier. It comes from Tennessee. Hardware store owner posts no gays allowed sign on his front door. A guy named Jeff Amex owns the Amex Hardware and Roofing Supply Shop in Washburn, Tennessee. He put the handwritten poster on his business after last week's Supreme Court ruling that legalized same-sex marriage. Quote, a lot of people have called me and congratulated me and people calling and threatening me, telling me I will regret this. No, I will never regret this. He put up a sign to let the homosexual people know that there are Christian people that are willing to take a stand. How about you take a stand, you hypocrite, on the bombings and burnings of Christian churches? Why don't you do that instead of putting a sign on your door? That's ridiculous. That's stupid. Almost as stupid as trying to bribe your way onto a mayoral ballot, as a matter of fact. He says, I don't hate people. It's not the people I hate. It's the sin that I hate. You ever hear that old expression? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know what? I hope the store goes out of business. I don't know how many gay people there are in Washburn, Tennessee. Maybe not that many. Maybe not any. But I hope he goes broke anyway. It's time for us to get out of here. (coughs) My thanks to John, who's been at the controls. 
throughout this past hour. I really appreciate you joining us. <coughs> Excuse me. So much appreciated. This has been the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. We'll be back next Wednesday to do it all over again. God willing, and the creek don't rise. Have yourself a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.